Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we preview the upcoming legislative session. Lawmakers are looking to just provide the necessary support to teachers to help students with whatever situation that they're in. We'll also get a look at how recent changes in public health measures are affecting businesses in the new year. Those stories and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Opening day of Colorado's legislative session is usually marked by lots of excitement. There's plenty of speeches and celebrations, hugs and handshakes. But given the coronavirus pandemic, as well as new concerns following last week's deadly attack at the U.S. Capitol, the start of the session this Wednesday will look very different from years past. To learn more, we're talking with KUNC's state capitol reporter, Scott Franz. Hey, Scott. Hey, Aaron. State lawmakers held a press conference earlier this week to sketch out a few details ahead of the first day. There will be a lot of COVID protocols in place, and they're also planning to go into recess a couple of days later. Can you talk through these different protocols and why they're happening? Yeah, so this is all about the coronavirus pandemic. They They plan to meet for just three days um, to pass an initial round of bills, um, and and that's because they don't want to bring crowds to the Capitol. Um, Now, in the last week, we've seen these new considerations about Capitol security, um, you know, in the wake of what happened uh, with the very disturbing um, scenes in Washington, D.C., but they've planned this uh, soft opening of the legislative session uh, for a few weeks now um, to really minimize the risk for lawmakers um, to spread the coronavirus. They already have an initial first round of bills they'll be taking up. What do we know about these? Well, they're not going to grab a lot of headlines, I'm predicting. They're they're very minor, um, and the best, the best term is probably technical. Like, for example, um, they're finding that some cities are having a hard time applying for the coronavirus relief funds in time. They, they need approval from their city councils, from their town boards. So one of the bills just, just extends the deadline, gives, gives local governments more time to get access. Uh, another one, um, you know, a lot of people uh, have been wanting to sign wills and get them notarized electronically, um, you know, during the pandemic. You know, that exemption allowing them to do that recently expired. So that's another piece. Just a handful of bills um, to really address some some kind of urgent um, things that that they want to get done right off the bat. In that press conference Monday, lawmakers said they will have access to the coronavirus vaccine before they come back February 16th. What has been the reaction to this? So lawmakers told us that they are... um, getting access. Many of them plan to to get vaccinated uh, as soon as this week um, with the hopes that, you know, when they come back uh, February 16th to really kick off the session into high gear, um, that many of them will be um, protected from the virus. You know, they work in a, a very crowded building. Um, we've seen some political arguments over some lawmakers not wearing masks. Um, you know, the, the Capitol draws lots of crowds. It's, it's hard to social distance sometimes. Um, you know, but they lawmakers were asked about the perception, you know, that they were 
um, perhaps jumping in, in the line in front of um, people 70 and older who haven't gotten it. And here's Majority Leader uh, Steve Finberg um, kind of addressing that that question and, and that perception. I don't think we're jumping the line. I, I think, you know, by no means are we um, uh, taking vaccines away from others that, uh, that absolutely need it more than us. Um, but I also think it's important for the continuation of our state government um, that the legislature is able to meet as the constitution requires. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, the work that we're gonna do this year and that we have been doing is really about providing relief and providing support for those families that are hurting right now. And then after this press conference, um, there was a bit of developing news last night uh, when members of the Capitol Press Corps, the, the reporters who regularly cover the legislative session, um, you know, we actually learned that um, we are being offered access uh, to the vaccine um, as well alongside lawmakers. Um, now, you know, this is something I'm, I'm still processing personally. Just thought I, it would be important to disclose that in the context of, um, you know, transparency and, you know, with lawmakers making headlines for, for getting access, you know, this is also being extended to a, uh, a small group of journalists, myself included. And so many issues to consider with that. Definitely. Well, lastly, Scott, the FBI has put out a bulletin warning of armed protests that are being planned at state capitals in all 50 states around the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. Given, of course, what happened last week at the U.S. Capitol, how is Colorado planning to handle any potential threats over the next uh, week or so? We've heard about the possibility that the state patrol is really going to step up its presence at the Capitol. Um, some lawmakers said that they are um, preparing for worst-case scenarios um, but hoping for the best, and that so far they haven't received any um, information about um, specific threats uh, elevated here in Colorado. Um, but, you know, I do follow um, other reporters at other state capitals. And, for example, Texas is kicking off its legislative session this week. And, you know, the first day there were um, definitely police in, um, you know, the, the riot gear with um, the shields and tactical gear and, um, you know, which they said wasn't wasn't common. So I expect, you know, that might be a scene uh, here at our state capitol with just an increased police presence, um, you know, in the event that any peaceful protests, um, in case there are any, any threats uh, during, during the session in the wake of what we're seeing in D.C. Scott Franz is KUNC State Capitol reporter. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. going to turn now to education and bring in our next guest, Jason Gonzalez. Jason is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado, and earlier this week, he was a part of a virtual panel with state lawmakers previewing the legislative session starting Wednesday. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So lawmakers are saying they will be focused on figuring out how to support students who are dealing with their own challenges in all of this. What sort of issues are lawmakers looking to tackle? One of the big things that they're looking to address is mental health, of course. Students are in a vastly different situation than they normally are in. Some of the representatives have heard stories or seen students who are uh, having 
a lot of issues coping with what's going on right now. Of course, learning is- loss is a big issue. We don't know where students are at necessarily, but all signs point to the, that there is learning loss right now. Lawmakers are looking to just provide the necessary support to teachers to help students with whatever situation that they're in. There's been back and forth about standardized testing and whether or not it should be administered to students during the pandemic. What did you hear from lawmakers about tests like CMAS or maybe like the PSAT or SAT? State Senator Rachel Zenzinger, who heads the Senate Education Committee, said she wants to bring legislation forward that would essentially halt the CMAS testing that would ask uh, the federal government for a waiver and direct CDE to ask for that and on the other side, I think Republicans really feel like we need to keep testing during this time. Um, Zensinger, of course, is not against testing. She says she doesn't want to see wholesale changes to the way we do standardized testing in the state. But uh, right now, she said it's hard to measure what's going on because it's a different situation than any previous years. Uh, Whereas Republicans have said, you know, we need to continue to test to see where students are at during this time. We, of course, can't talk about the legislative session and education without talking about the budget and Governor Jared Polis. How does he and his budget proposal from last November fit into all of this? Governor Polis wants to restore money for higher education and K-12 and wants to put everything that was kind of taken out from this year's cuts that were really drastic um, and just try to make all all of those sectors whole again. Unfortunately, uh, lawmakers are looking at this as, hey, we, we don't know if we can do that. We don't know if we can put all that money back. What's the federal government going to do? And what's our tax revenue going to look like? Uh, so it's really going to depend on uh, what our financial outlook is at this time and whether they can fulfill what Governor Polis wants. As far as education priorities that might be on the back burner, lawmakers said they're, they're not sure if they can put money fully back into higher education budgets. It's, it is going to be very dependent on the federal government. And as far as early childhood work, which is really important for, I think, lawmakers across the state, there's going to be financial constraints that is really going to put this on the back burner as well. Of course, we had a special session that ended in, in December, and lawmakers put about $45 million for child care providers and to support existing and new programs. But that's uh, likely not going to be something that they're looking at this year. Before we let you go, Jason, can you give us a picture of where students are at in terms of the new semester? Are most school districts back to in-person learning or on the way? That depends. Each district has its own plan. Uh, Many districts have already brought back elementary students or are planning to do so next week. As far as middle and high school, many are phasing in and students could be back in later in January or early in February. But that's really depending on what happens with the pandemic. That was Jason Gonzalez, a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to an article with more from that legislative preview panel at our website, KUNC.org. listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. Coming up after the break, we'll hear how recent changes to the state's COVID-19 dial system are impacting restaurant owners along the Front Range. We'll also have more on the connection between wildfires and the snowpack that provides much of the water we use here in the West. Stay with us.
2020 was a year full of record-breaking wildfires here in the West. Colorado saw its three largest wildfires on record over the course of the year, and in total, more than half a million acres burned across the state. These wildfires in our region turned swaths of western forests into barren burn scars. Those forests store winter snowpack that millions of people rely on for drinking and irrigation water. But with such large and wide-reaching fires, there's little data to work with to determine what comes next. As KUNC's Luke Runyon reports, scientists are investigating what happens when a river's headwaters erupt in flames. Roaming through a burn scar is like running an obstacle course. There are downed trees to climb over, duck under, and get tripped by. Oh, no. I'm okay. You sure? Yep. And the trees that are entirely burned out, leaving gaping holes in the ground. Wow, there's so much ash there. Oh my gosh. That is so much ash. That's Stephanie Camp, a hydrology professor at Colorado State University. They burn like all the way down underground. Just like followed the roots. Yeah, look at that. Camp and a team of researchers are installing a weather station and stream gauges along a steep creek within the Cameron Peak burn scar. At more than 208,000 acres, the Northern Colorado Fire is the state's largest on record. Camp wants to know, what happens to the snow that falls on a burned area this big? Some of these streams have burned so much, I don't know if you noticed coming up, like the whole riparian zone is burned. And so there's nothing alive at all. Snow in the West equals water. And Camp says research shows fires can affect snowpack in very different ways. With no trees, more snow accumulates on the ground. But the lack of tree cover also means it's more exposed to the sun. And in the spring, melting can become erratic. We're kind of in a brave new world when it comes to snow and wildfire. Ann Nolan studies geography at the University of Nevada, Reno. She says another side effect of fire is how it can change the composition of snow when it falls on the ground. It becomes darker, picking up charred bits of ash. And then all that black guck on the snow makes it melt a lot faster. Fires are an important part of forest ecology in the western U.S., but Nolan says the fires in 2020 were unprecedented. The scale that we're experiencing now, we actually don't know what the hydrologic impacts will be. That's because no two fires are alike. Gabrielle Boirame is a researcher at the Desert Research Institute in Las Vegas. She's looked closely at one creek in Yosemite National Park. There, land managers have been hands-off and allowed smaller fires to burn more frequently. Do those kinds of fires then lead to less sedimentation and less problems with flooding and water quality? Um, And it looks like they do. Another hurdle is getting good data from burn scars. Landslides and floods after a fire can destroy scientific instruments, leaving the record incomplete. But as fires burn bigger and hotter, Boirame says there's a push for researchers to get into the field and understand how fire and water intersect. And so people are starting to realize that and starting to realize that we're working on such thin margins in terms of water supply in the West that... No, we actually need to know 
Okay, well, I guess I think we just ought to do this unless yeah. we want to spend another day looking for more sites. After an hour and a half of scrambling through the Cameron Peak burn scar, researcher Stephanie Camp and her team have found a location for their weather station and begin staking it into the burnt ground. Camp says it can be easy to think of wildfires as singular acute events that displace people from their homes and choke the air with smoke until they're put out. But when it comes to snowpack and water supplies, the impact can last for decades. And so when those areas get stressed by something like a whole series of severe wildfires, then we're talking about affecting the water supply of not just that area. But the entire water supply of the West, since most of our region's rivers start in relatively small, snowy forests. I'm Luke Runyon in Poudre Canyon, Colorado. Luke Runyon is KUNC's Colorado River Basin reporter. You can find many more stories like this one at our website, KUNC.org. Last week, the 33 Colorado counties that were classified as level red on the state's COVID-19 status dial were downgraded to level orange. That means restrictions in those counties were loosened overnight, regardless of whether individual counties' COVID-19 metrics met the state's own guidelines for the downgrade. On social media, Governor Jared Polis said he was trying to walk the difficult line between the public health crisis and the economic crisis. And you might say that downgrade on the dial is an upgrade for businesses affected by those restrictions. They can now operate at a slightly increased capacity. Restaurants in particular have been hurting under the level red prohibition on indoor dining, but now they'll be able to open their doors again to customers at a limited capacity. Now we're going to bring in KUNC's Ray Solomon, who's been following all of this for us. Hi, Ray. Hey, Henry. What has the reaction been from the business community? I imagine there must be some excitement. Well, yes and no. I had a chat with John Tayer with the Boulder Chamber of Commerce, and he was telling me that parts of the service industry, like gyms, for instance, welcome the move as a chance to start the recovery process, but... I would say it's a mixed bag. For restaurants, not all of them are seeing this as the indication that they should reopen. And that's certainly the case for Christine Rook. She owns Fresh Times, which is a small counter service restaurant in Boulder. She had to shut down her doors to in-person dining and switch to takeout and delivery only back in November. That was sort of just ahead of the red level restrictions coming down. And when she heard that the county would move back into the orange zone, she was not impressed. Uh, Not enough. Too little. Too little. Too late. Like, why bother? You know? She says she'll continue with takeout and delivery only for the time being. And have you heard from anyone who can take advantage of the looser restrictions? Yeah, I also had a chance to speak with Jay Alowski. He's better known as Boulder's Pasta Jay. And he was very excited to open his doors to indoor dining again, which he did as soon as the rules changed 
uh, a week ago Monday. We're coming out of this, and and it might go back down again. You don't know, but you know, it's a, you're looking for that glimmer of hope. So far, he says it's been really busy, and that's great news for his staff because reopening, even for limited indoor dining only, has allowed him to increase staffing hours by about thirty percent. But he will also admit that with a 25% limit on his capacity, profitability remains out of reach. You lose less, you know, you're, you're living on less lines of credit. <laughs> Losing less doesn't sound like a long-term solution for business owners. Nope. And yet everyone I spoke with explained that that was exactly the game they were playing. No one was trying to turn a profit at this point, not even break even. Christine Rook says that at best, it's really about slowing the hemorrhage of money right now. Any of these restaurants are using any of their cushion in order to stay in business right now, whether that's your line of credit or your credit card or savings, right? And then what, then you close and then you've used all of your savings and then you have to declare bankruptcy, right? Like it just gets like super messy. So that's the reason why these restaurants are even putting a pause on operations because they're wanting to conserve as much cash as possible. And I also checked back in with Aileen Riley, the Denver restaurateur that I spoke with last month. If you remember, she was the uh, the restaurant owner who had bought a bunch of these little greenhouses to use as outdoor dining pods. And when I spoke to her, all of those greenhouses were sitting empty because operating under red level restrictions was causing her to burn through her financial cushion too quickly. So uh, what's the update with her? Is she taking advantage of the move back to Orange? Unfortunately, she's not. In fact, just a few weeks after that first story published, she decided to close down both of her restaurants completely for the time being. We were losing so much money. You know, me and my business partners really sat down and kind of did the math and we were going to be losing less money if we just paid our rent and utilities um, than we would if we were trying to remain operational. Not even takeout. No, no takeout, no delivery. She had to furlough all of the remaining staff. But it's not as if they're shutting down permanently. She describes it more like going into hibernation. We're looking at about eight or nine weeks. Um, sometime in, in March is kind of when we're targeting a reopen right now. Because she's hoping for warmer weather then and maybe some vaccine-fueled consumer confidence. But that's also about how long she estimates it will take to get another round of PPP money from the latest stimulus package. And that is key. For a lot of small businesses hobbled by this pandemic economy, they need that federal money to come through if they're going to survive. Now, some of these counties that were just moved to Level Orange were also recently approved for one of the five-star certification programs. Can you remind us what that's about and tell us about how that program interacts with this move to Level Orange? Sure. So the five-star certification program authorizes counties to loosen capacity restrictions for some local businesses. If they can show that they're meeting enhanced safety standards, those businesses can act as if they are one level up from where the county is on the COVID-19 status dial. So for instance, a certified business in a red level county would use orange level restrictions and so on. Officials in Boulder are in the process of applying for state approval of a five-star program there. And one has been in effect in Larimer County, where it's been dubbed Level Up, since just before Christmas. 
I spoke with Anne Hutchinson, who's president of the Fort Collins Chamber of Commerce. When she learned that Larimer was moving into Level Orange, she had high expectations. Wednesday night, we're partying and celebrating, thinking that we were leveling up and how exciting for all of our businesses to be able to think about opening at Level Yellow on Monday. But it's not quite so simple. The governor might have pulled all these counties into level orange, but they aren't actually meeting the state's orange metrics. So until they get there and stay there for at least seven days in a row, there will be no leveling up. All the same, Hutchinson told me she is optimistic. Level red is very difficult on business. The the numbers just don't make sense. And um, we heard that refrain regularly from our business members that, that anything we could do to get out of that red level, to begin to reopen, gives business that chance to potentially survive. So like I said, it, it's a mixed bag. A mixed bag indeed. KUNC's Ray Solomon, thanks for reporting on this. Anytime. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we hear from an expert on extremist groups, how they gain traction, and what can be done to help minimize the harm. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our show is produced with help from Adam Reyes and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.